So, um, we are carrying on our series in Acts. Um, Sarah was speaking last week about the conversion of Saul, who will become Paul. Um, and we're going to be carrying on that story. But this morning, um, I want us to be... Um, I have two working titles for my talk this morning. And um, the first is Believe in the Impossible. And what I'd love to do now, if it's possible, Grace, is to show just a 50-second clip of a film that will be very familiar to you, but maybe you've not seen it in this way before. So if we could show that clip, that would be fabulous. Some people have got too much time on their hands. That's the first thing we learned from that. But what better introduction to believing the impossible is there than that? But, you know, I think we're all just beginning to believe a little bit, aren't we? We're kind of watching it going, wait a minute, that was a very accomplished performance with no panic and no worry, and I don't quite know what to do with that. But somehow this team have found themselves in the semi-final and we're playing Croatia, which isn't easy, but it's not impossible. And then we're down to one game and anything can happen in one game. And maybe, just maybe, and there's something going on and people are starting to believe and in this time of polarization, we've found something that we can all be together in, in cheering our nation on. And maybe, just maybe, it's coming home, and we're believing the impossible. So, hopefully, um, hopefully my PowerPoint is coming up. There it is. We have to get better at believing the impossible. So that was my first stab at a title for this morning. So bear that in mind as we're going through, believing the impossible. And when you kind of go, what does it mean to believe the impossible? Well, football's coming home is a perfect example of believing the impossible. My second stab at a title for this, embracing disruption. And with that in mind, and we'll talk a little bit more of that as we go through, but with that in mind, let's read. Let's read the text. So it's in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 20, and it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. 
it increased in numbers. So, it says Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Because if you remember, Saul was this guy. He was working for the Jewish authorities, hunting down followers of Jesus, arresting them, overseeing their, their assassination and their death. He was on a mission to eliminate the followers of Jesus from Israel. And this is what he'd been doing. And, and, so he, and on this mission, he had, on the road to Damascus, he had encountered this bright, incredibly bright light and gone blind and heard the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's me, Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul had found himself in the very position that the God that he was trying to protect with his zealousness, with his legality, with his strength, with his passion, had become the God that he was in opposition to. A sobering thought for all of us. Sometimes the things that we can fight to protect so much can lead us to living in opposition to the nature of that same God. And Sarah talked last week, and she kind of threw out this idea going, well, you know, um, it says that Saul was blind for three days, and God spoke to Ananias saying, go and heal him, and, but Saul was blind for three days, and she's kind of going, I bet Ananias didn't just jump up and run out and heal him. I bet he was kind of going, really, God? Seriously? You want me to, this guy? Which is a really good point. And then she went, but you know, I don't know if that's in the scripture. And I went up to Ephraim and said, that is in the scripture. There's a parallel here with Jonah. Jonah was asked to go and give this message to go and save the Ninevites and ended up three days in a whale because he didn't want to go because he knew that God was going to forgive them and he didn't think they deserved forgiveness because they were the most barbaric city. And I think in the same way, there's this hint in the scripture of Ananias. If you can imagine this guy coming through, wanting to hunt you down, wanting to kill you all. And then God says, I want you to go and pray for him so he can get his sight back. I want you to go and pray for him so he can meet me. And Ananias going, surely you're not going to forgive him. Surely the guy who stood there while Stephen was stoned to death, surely you're not going to forgive him. You can't let him off the hook. How disruptive for Ananias. But Ananias did go and pray for Saul, and Saul's sight was given back to him. And Saul became one of the group of Christians. And it says that he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he didn't wait around. He didn't do a Bible study course. He didn't do a, he didn't do a newcomer's course. He didn't wait to... He didn't wait for anything. He was just at once. He began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Disruption. Disruption to everybody. The way they thought the world worked, the way they, the, who they thought Saul was, who they thought they were, the sides they thought they were on, all disrupted. People there going, he's not supposed to be convicting us, he's supposed to be killing them. People in the synagogues expecting Saul to come 
and tell them how right they were. Tell them how good they are. And reassuring them that he's going to go and kill those followers of Jesus. But instead, he's convicting them. The complete opposite of what they expected from him. And they are mystified. And they're mystified to such an extent. And it says, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a fascinating line. Because the disciples have been around for a little while. Giving their witness, giving their testimony, telling people about Jesus. And then Saul comes along. And his arguments are different. His language is different. His gospel, in some ways, the way he interprets the scriptures, the way he speaks this out, is different. And he is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Time and time again with Saul, with Paul, we see him bringing a new way of seeing things, a disruptive gospel. I know for many Christians, Paul is our guy. Paul says it, that's good enough for me. Paul's the guy who tells me how things are. If Paul says it, it's in the Bible, that's it. And we think that on Paul, we're, being, we're in the safe ground, we're on the, you know, this is what we know, this is what we understand. This is Paul's telling us that we're right. But Paul started off as the renegade. Paul started off as the radical, as the outsider, as the people bringing new ideas, as the person bringing new ways of talking about scripture. He was the outsider. So, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him because they could not put up with this anymore. He was a huge threat to them. But Saul learned of the plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Because he had to get out. This isn't the only time this story is mentioned. Paul also mentions this in 2 Corinthians when he's talking um, to the Corinthians about all the suffering that he's done. He says this, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was belted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. And in danger from false believers, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. That's quite a story, isn't it? You're kind of going, what did they say to prompt that response? <laughs> what was going on there? Like this? Like he has just laid it all out on the table there, hasn't he? He's just gone, okay, let me tell you a few things. When he decided to follow Jesus, he chose disruption. He chose suffering. He chose hardship. He chose opposition. He chose a certain level of unpopularity. In danger from everybody. Gentiles, Jews, bandits, everybody. In danger everywhere. 
in the city, in the country, at sea. This is the life that, that he was called to. And he's in Damascus and they lower him, they put him in a basket and they lower him out through a hole in the wall and he escapes. And he escapes to head off to Jerusalem. When he came to Jerusalem, can you imagine he's going, great, now, now I'm going to go to the homeland of my new faith. Now I'm going to go to my new family. These people will get it. These are the people who believe what I believe, who know the God that I know. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Ever experienced that, anyone? Where people doubt you, people don't trust you. Well, this is Paul's experience from the very people who should be trusting him. But... Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, doing his thing again, his new ways of thinking, his new theology, his interpretations of scripture, and they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. As we go through Acts, you will see a less than easy relationship between the apostles and Paul. There's tension in the room. And he's arrived, and they're kind of going, oh, I'm not so sure. So then Barnabas is going, I'll, I'll bring you into the group. Barnabas isn't one of the apostles because I'll bring you into the group and introduce him. And they go, okay, fair enough, Barnabas, we'll go with it. And they welcome him in. And then, as soon as it starts getting tricky, as soon as he starts causing trouble, as soon as people start threatening to kill him, the apostles go, why don't we pop down for a little trip down to Caesarea, Saul, and see what's down at the docks, and they take him down to Caesarea at the docks, and they go, oh, look, a ship to Tarsus. You're from Tarsus. Why don't you go on that? That's a really good idea. And they put him on this ship to Tarsus, and like, I go, why don't you just go home, see for some work for you to do around there. Love, thanks for popping in. Um, we'll write to you. Like, they're just like, okay, on your way now, so we'll stop causing trouble around here. And they send him home, back where you came from. Thanks. But no thanks. It's been great, but that's enough. Interesting though, isn't it? That it plays into this message that Jesus gave them at the very beginning of Acts saying, and you will take my message, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Tarsus is beyond Judea and Samaria. So we've talked about the Ethiopian eunuch who was the first witness as it were. And Paul gets sent back to his hometown. But we actually hear, interestingly, we'll skip forward in the story a little bit, we actually hear nothing about what Saul does in Tarsus. It doesn't appear that he does anything at all. Maybe he's licking his wounds a little bit. Maybe he's feeling a bit sorry for himself. Maybe he's, I don't know. But we hear nothing about what he does in Tarsus. The next thing we hear about him in the next chapter or so, or two, is Barnabas goes, gets sent to Antioch which is kind of a, a key 
trade route city on the coast. Again, north, a little bit south of Tarsus, but north. And when he goes up there, Barnabas goes, oh, I'll pop up to Tarsus and see how Saul's doing. And goes and visits him and brings him to Tarsus. Brings him to Antioch, sorry, with him. Includes him again. Pulls in the outsider. Pulls in the outcast and says, come with me. And we'll do this together in Antioch. And Antioch is key because it's such a key trade route that the message that Paul and Barnabas bring to the people of Antioch spreads all over the known world. But Barnabas, Barnabas is the guy. Barnabas, as we've seen earlier in this text, means son of encouragement. You see, Barnabas doesn't see the problems with Saul, he sees the potential. He doesn't blame, he doesn't, he's not the cynic or the critic. He's the encourager. He draws Saul in. This guy who a few days or weeks ago wanted to kill him, he's like, no, come on, I'll, I'll bring you in. He challenges the church in Jerusalem to include him to welcome him. And then when he gets sent away, Barnabas goes out of his way to go and draw Saul back in. Wouldn't it be great to be a Barnabas? Are we? Are we encouragers? Or are we critics? How do we respond to people? What's our instinct? Do we cheer people on? Or do we hold people back? Do we see the potential? Or do we see the problems? How do we react? Do we find ourselves complaining about everything? Or do we find ourselves going out of our way to encourage, to cheer people on, to include, to love, to see them become the best versions of themselves. Because that's what Barnabas does. And it changes the church. It changes the history of the church. Do we draw people in or do we keep people out? Let's be Barnabas. Let's be people like Barnabas. Let's see the best in people. Let's see the opportunity in people. Let's see the, let's see the potential in people. Let's see Christ in people, even before they've seen it themselves. Let's be encouragers, not critics. We're told in Scripture to encourage one another and build each other up. It's one of the characteristics of the body of Christ. So let's be like Barnabas. So, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, remember that first area, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, that church enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. We see 
the church coming through a time of disruption into a time of growth and stability. So, embracing disruption. Last week, um, when Sarah was preaching, um, last week when Sarah was preaching, I, um, as in the response time at the end as we were worshipping, I felt like God was speaking to me about this church, about us. And I thought, should I go forward and share this now? And then I felt God say, no, no, sit on it. Let it seep in a bit. Let it settle in you a bit. And then share it next week. This is what you're going to be teaching about next week. And I was looking at the text going, I don't really know how that fits very much, God, but all right. And then, as I've studied it through the week, as I've read it through the week, I've found how it fits. And here we go. It felt like God was saying to us that we are in a time of disruption. And that's true for us as a church. We are being disrupted in many ways as a church. But I felt like God was saying, it's not enough for me to disrupt the church collectively. I am going to disrupt every one of you. I'm going to disrupt every one of you. For some of us, that's already started. And for some of us, that is to come. But I feel like God is saying, I am going to disrupt every one of you. And... And we might be sat there thinking, well, disruption is a really bad thing. But disruption is a thing that changes us. This is a slide that I found from a business seminar. Innovation is doing the same things a bit better, and then there's doing new things, but disruption is making things that make the old things obsolete. And I think disruption in our sense is when God disrupts us. You know, somebody said this morning when I said, oh, this is what I'm going to talk about, and somebody went, ha, well, I'm done. God's disrupted me. That's already happened for me. Like, oh, good, I got that out of the way. Now I can carry on as normal. But disruption's not like that. That's just inconvenience. That's what, that's what that is. If we go through a time of disruption and we come out the other side unchanged, we haven't been disrupted. If we come out thinking the things that we used to think before or seeing the world in the way, or in the same situation as we were before, that's not disruption. That's inconvenience. It's just a bit of suffering maybe. Disruption changes us. Disruption means that we can't see things the way we saw things before. That nothing, you know when you have one of those moments in your life and you stand there and look, it can be a horrific thing, like death in the family or whatever, or it can be an amazing thing like birth in a family. Or but you get to that moment and you kind of and you say, Do you know, nothing is ever gonna be the same again. The way I used to think of the world. I can't ever think of the world that way anymore. The way I used to approach life, I can't ever approach life that way anymore. 
Babies do that to you. Babies disrupt. And when you have your first child, you think, you know, maybe you've got life cracked, you've got life, you know how things work, you know how, you know, you've got your social circle, you've got everything going, you've got, life's got a rhythm and a pattern to it, and then this baby comes along. And very just go, why did no one tell me <laughs> that this is what this was going to be like? Why did no one tell me this is what was going to happen? Someone should have told me. And all your friends are going, no, no, we tried to tell you. You just couldn't possibly conceive of what it was. Like, you couldn't possibly get your head around it. And everyone's going, oh, my goodness, baby's going to change it. And you're going, yeah, yeah, no, we know. Oh, it's going to be very exciting. And people walk away going, they have no idea. <laughs> and then the baby comes along and you go, why did no one tell me? We're like, we told you. But you just can't even imagine it because everything has changed. Everything's changed. Your energy levels have changed. How you view the world, how you view people, how you view risk. I used to be a fairly rapid driver until you have a child. Well, some people, and now I used to be a really rapid driver. And then you have a child and you're going, oh my goodness, I need to be a little bit more careful here. It's not just, a, this isn't just about me anymore. I've got a child that I need to be considerate of and a family that I'm responsible for. It changes you. It changes your energy levels and it changes your view on the world and it changes your emotions and it changes your thought processes and it changes everything. It's disruption. That's what disruption does. And I feel like when God's saying, I am going to disrupt you, he's not going, are you going to go through a few tough things? God's saying, the way you think about stuff is going to change and you won't even be able to remember how you used to think about stuff. The way you see the world is going to change and you won't even remember, it won't make sense to you how you used to see the world. The things that you prioritized, the things you prioritize now will not be the things that you prioritize on the other side of this disruption. The way we operate, the way we act. Disruption for all of us. And for some of us that might mean, that might mean some real hardship. For some of us it might mean walking away from whatever situation and giving up our jobs and going into something incredibly risky and new. For some of us it might be bringing real innovation and disruption to what we're already doing, where we're already positioned. Because you see, the work of the church isn't just what happens on a Sunday or what the church does, you know, you have a family and job clubs and whatever through the week. The work of the church is what you do in your workplace. How you speak to people, how you love people, how you interact with people, how you serve people, how you act generously and abundantly. But God's saying, I'm going to disrupt that. I want to show you new ways of operating in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your family. I want to show you new ways. I'm going to disrupt. And it might be that some of you are in your workplace and we just need to be more tuned into God and listening to God more because God's going to say, I've got a word for that person. I want you to pray for that person. I want you to go and speak to your boss about this idea. And it might seem like total madness, but take a risk. Go and do it. Step out. Be courageous. Because disruption 
leaves us changed. You see, William Booth, founder of Salvation Army, said, I'm not waiting for a move of God. I am a move of God. Now, that's not just a tough line from a movie. That's a guy who was like, our role as a church isn't just to sit back and be excited when God's going to do something because then everyone will see that we were right all the time. We are the move of God. And we're changed by it. We're changed by it. God changes us into So we become more Christ-like, so we become more courageous, so we become more confident in who God is in us, so we step out and take more risks. We dare to believe in the impossible. And when we hear God prompting us to do something that looks impossible, then we can know that it's God. And God wants to disrupt. Theodore Roosevelt said, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. Anyone can do that. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. It's quite a famous quote. Do you know, one of the things that has become increasingly apparent through this World Cup campaign is my irritation with commentators. <laughs> and if you've had the pleasure of watching a game with me over the last two or three weeks, I apologize. But I get really irritated by commentators who sit there and, you know, if, if, somebody, if somebody passes, they go, oh, he should have had a shot. And if someone has a shot and misses, they go, oh, he should have passed. It is so easy. And then they get their information wrong, and then they say ridiculous things. At one point this week, I'm sorry, I have to get this off my chest, uh, Harry Kane, Harry Kane scored a goal, and the commentator went, Harry Kane, one of our own. Isn't that the point of international teams? Like, of course he's one of our own. You have to be one of our own to be in the team. We can't just sign Brazilians up to make us better. You have to be one of our own. And this commentator decided that what he wanted to give his moment to when Harry Kane scored his goal was one of our own. It's like, come on, think about what you're saying. But it's easy, right? It's easy to be the critic. It's easy to sit there and go, oh, they should have done this or they should have done this. But what God calls us to is to get in the arena, to be covered with blood and sweat and tears. You know, we, if England go on to win the World Cup, that will be an amazing thing for our nation. That will be an amazing thing for us. But those footballers will never be the same again. We'll have a good month. Their lives will be changed because they're involved, because they're engaging, because they're getting dirty and they're taking risks. 
they're leaving themselves wide open to criticism. Are we going to be people who get in the arena? Are we going to be people who dare to dream? Are we going to be people who dare to take risks? Are we going to be people who dare to step out, out of our comfort zones, out of the place where we're not in danger of failure or success, but into the arena? Are we going to be people who dare to hope? Do you know, hope, hope, we're going to talk more about hope in the coming months because hope, hope is the currency that we trade in as the body of Christ. We believe in a gospel that says your future doesn't have to be defined by your past. We live in a world racked by poverty, not just financial poverty, emotional poverty, social poverty, all, all forms of poverty, spiritual poverty. We live in a world racked by poverty, and what poverty does is it tells you you will always be like this. You will always be poor. You will always be lonely. You will always be unhappy. You will always be depressed. You will always be pointless. Poverty tells you that you will never, it will always be like this. It strips you of your tomorrows. So even if you're really poor, if today you get some money, what tends to happen with people who are in severe poverty is they don't find ways of using that money to extract themselves from poverty. They'll spend it. They'll, 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 they'll blow it there and then. Because I'll always be poor, so at least I can enjoy it today. We do the same in relationships. We do the same with our spirituality. We just get the hits. But we don't believe that actually anything will ever be different. The antidote to poverty isn't money or relationships or whatever. The antidote to poverty is hope. This message that says your future doesn't have to be defined by your past. You don't have to live this way anymore. And hope is the currency we deal in as a church. We believe in a God who says that this is all headed somewhere. We believe in a God that says that he created us with beautiful design, with beautiful purpose. Hope is the currency of the gospel. So let's be people of hope. Let's dare to hope. Let's dare to try. Give it a go, knowing that we might fall flat on our faces At least we gave it a go. When God calls us to take this ridiculous step of faith, whether it's speaking to somebody, whether it's sharing our testimony with somebody, whether it's sharing a word with somebody, whether it's praying for healing for somebody, whether it's giving up our job and going into something entirely new, whether it's allowing to let go of our theology to see God in a new way, whatever it is that God is calling you to and stirring you in, try. Let's be people who dare to try. Let's be people who dare to embrace the disruption. You don't sit here going, oh my goodness, no, God's going to disrupt. But people who go, come on, God. 
change me, disrupt me, challenge me. Bring me to a point where I can stand and say, I will never be the same again. Let's dare to believe the impossible. Let's be people who dare to believe the impossible. Amen? Amen. So I don't know what that disruption looks like for you. I don't know. But you might. You might. And I'd love you to take that step this morning. To go, okay, bring it on. I'm stepping into that disruption. I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to listen to your voice. I'm going to expect the miracles. I'm going to take those steps. I'm going to try. Knowing that I might fall flat on my face. But I'm going to try. Why don't we stand? Because you might be sat there this morning or stood there now saying, I don't know. I don't know what that disruption is. I'd love to take some time to wait. And if you know, I'd love you to come forward and we can pray with you. We'll have the prayer ministry team here. Some of the leaders can be here. And we can pray with you. Or just wait. Ask God. Ask him. Invite him to disrupt you. To shake off the stuff that obscures and gets in the way, that distorts, that hems us in. Somebody had a picture when we were praying at the beginning, before the service, of a space rocket taking off. And as the space rocket starts to take off, all the scaffolding, all the towers fall away. And they take off. What are those towers that are making you that are making you feel safe, that are making you feel secure? What are those towers that need to fall away so you can take off? The things we've been relying on, the things we've been counting on, putting our trust in. What are those things that need to fall away so we can put our trust in God? So wait and listen. If you know what it is, come forward and we'll pray with you. And let's worship. Lord, we invite your disruption this morning. We invite you to disrupt us as a church and we invite you to disrupt us, each one of us as individuals. Lord, we invite you to change us. to shake us, to transform us. Amen.